when you're sleeping less, there is this inflammatory response and that might flare up a condition that you already have. So... Grown Girls. Welcome back to the Girl We Grown Now podcast. I am your host, Victoria, and I'm so excited to have you all tuning in this week. So we just started a new month. And as I've mentioned before, I am now doing monthly series. So the focus for this month is body health, which I am so excited to talk about body health. I feel like over the last few years, I have been learning so much about how to optimize my health. And I really do feel that a lot of us do think we are healthier than what we are because there's just a lot of different information out there on health. There are these gimmicky health items that we see in our grocery stores. And my goal with having this monthly focus on body health is to really just bring on people who have expertise in medicine and nutrition and fitness and things like that so that they can help us make more informed decisions on what we're putting into our body and just different things that we can do to live a healthier lifestyle. So for today's episode, I have Teresa. Lisa Denike on. She is a board certified clinical sleep educator, national speaker, and the founder of Sleep Better NYC. Sleep Better NYC supports sleepy people and they provide actionable guidance for self-improvement or referrals for medical testing and treatment. Her expertise is in sleep apnea, sleep hygiene, and helping her clients build a mindset for sleep and overall well-being. I really love this episode because I learned so much. We talk about why sleep is so important. We talk about what we experience when we do go to sleep. We talk about different sleep habits and how we can optimize sleep. And really, there's just a lot of information here so that we can all start the journey to improve our sleep. As I said before, I really am focusing on prioritizing my body health. And this year, I really started to learn how important sleep is. So I thought it was so important to have a sleep episode in my body health series so that I can share all of this knowledge with you all. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the episode with Teresa. Hello, Teresa. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me today. Of course. I'm so excited for this conversation. I have so many questions about sleep. It's been a huge focus of mine for this year, so I'm excited. Good. Well, that's all I do and think about, so I'm happy to talk to you. Perfect. Okay. So I like to give a little icebreaker question for all of my guests before we get into the nitty gritty of the questions. So what is the best life advice that you have ever received that you still apply today? Oh, this is a good one. I want to say someone gave me a phrase and it it sounds really harsh at first, but let me explain. So the phrase that nothing matters, and I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I mean it like, you know, those days when you, you say something really weird to someone, you're like so embarrassed. And then if you sit back and you think about it, do they even hear it? Do they really care? Even if they are a little bit annoyed by it, are they going to even remember in a few days? Is it going to affect your life? None of it really matters in the grand scheme of things. So especially in business, you know, I I must have tried 500 things in the last year that didn't really go the way I wanted it to. But it doesn't matter because I have other things that I did succeed at and I'm still happy and doing what I want to do. So yeah, I would say nothing matters. <laughs> I really love that. And I think a lot of times we think about it more than anyone else. So yeah, it might bother us. Oh, yeah. But nine times out of 10, the other person's really not going to care. Exactly. Not at all. So what role does sleep play in our health? And can you tell us why it's so important? Yes. I mean, I could give you a thousand reasons why I personally think sleep is important, but I'll spare you all of that. Actually, my business partner, Drew, said a phrase today that is so true and so relatable. He said that if you can't sleep, nothing else matters. And I mean, sleep touches almost every part of our physical and mental health. In fact, you can survive far longer without food and water than you can without sleep. So that alone, I think, really puts things into perspective and lets you know how important sleep is. Sleep deprivation and untreated sleep disorders, they are linked to risk of heart attacks, stroke, um, exacerbation of diabetes, cancer, mood disorders. But on the flip side, when you have good quality sleep and when you're working on it, you know, if you are getting over or you're being treated for a sleep disorder, just for example, it can help to improve your mental health. It can speed up your weight loss. It can improve sexual dysfunction, help manage hormone levels. Again, it really touches every part of your physical and mental health. I think 
in the last week, or maybe it was like the last two weeks, I've been seeing a lot of posts because a study came out that a certain kind of nap can help to increase brain mass. So if you're someone who really cares about your health and well-being, you can kind of put sleep into everything that it can improve. Yeah. So this year I started working with a functional medicine doctor and we focus on four areas and sleep is one of them, but I had never thought about it. And I feel like, at least in America, I feel like we do have that hustle culture. It's like, oh, sleep when you die, Mm. just work and grind and pursue your passions. But I'm really grateful that within the last couple of years, I would say people have started to have a lot more conversations about sleep and how important it is because I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a good point too. You know, I do think it has a lot to do with our culture. And, you know, if you're at, if you're sleeping at night, you're not sitting on computer working for someone else and making the money. But yeah, especially in the last few years, especially as we focus a little more on mental health, we're realizing how important sleep is. And it's just something everybody does every single night, even if you're bad at it. So again, we sort of forget how important it is, even though we all need it to literally survive. Yes. Can you tell us what actually happens while we're sleeping? Yes. So of course, I'm going to assume most people realize that sleep is great for rest and repair, but it's not that your brain is just turned off during sleep. You know, your brain doesn't actually even go to sleep. It's very, very active, especially in certain stages of sleep. So there is a complex cascade of physiological events that happen when you're sleeping and it doesn't just stop. Even digestion keeps going and metabolism is still working, although a lot of things do slow down. So there are different stages Stages of sleep, depending on, you know, when you're looking at studies, they can be called different things, but for now we'll call them stage one, two, three, four, and REM sleep. Stage three is often referred to as deep sleep. And during deep sleep, you go through a process in your brain. It's sometimes called a meningeal wash. It basically means that you're clearing out toxins that build up all day. So there's an analogy of it being similar to garbage being put out on the street in the city, and then it's taken away at night. So it's totally normal that these toxins exist and they build up in our brains, but it needs to be removed. And that's what happens during deep sleep, which is why it's so important to get that every night. It's also where human growth hormone is released. And then if we're thinking about REM sleep, which most people know is where most of our dreams occur, this is also where emotional processing happens and memory consolidation. It's where we take our short-term memories and we move them to long-term memories. So if you don't have these deeper stages of sleep and you aren't getting continuous sleep, you're kind of missing out on these really, really important processes. And it's so critical to sleep, especially when you're learning new skills and information in general because of all that processing that I just mentioned. So that is so interesting. I've never heard the link between memory, like long-term memory and getting into that REM stage. Also, so does that mean if you don't dream a lot, you probably just don't get to REM sleep enough or maybe at all? Yes and no. For the most part, unless you have a very serious sleep disorder, you're going to be in REM sleep at some point throughout the night. Most people go through several cycles, so they'll get several stages of REM throughout the night. If you remember your dreams, it's most likely because you're waking up during them. So if you don't remember your dreams, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You probably just don't remember them. That's actually our brains are designed to forget them, especially, you know, we all know that some of them can be a little crazy. So it doesn't really help us to hold on to them for the most part. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I agree. Yes. Okay. So can you tell us the role that circadian rhythm plays in all this? Because I feel like I hear people talk about that. They'll be like, oh, like I don't want to mess up my circadian rhythm. And so I want to go to sleep at the same time every night or whatever. But can you explain that for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely like a very buzzy word, although it is a, a true scientific word. There are people who study just that, not me. So circadian rhythm is <laughs> it's our natural body clock, or it's sometimes referred to our natural body clock. In humans, it's regulated by a tiny part of our brain called the SCN, or the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And circadian rhythms in general are physical and behavioral changes that 
follow this 24-hour cycle. So it's relatively repetitive day to day. If we think about animals, we can, it's a little bit easier to understand because they do almost the same thing every day and every night. Whereas humans, you know, we're complicated and we like to switch it up a little bit. But since it's based <laughs> on a day-to-day, day and night, 24-hour cycle, these processes are very sensitive to light and dark. So for example, you know, whether we want to or not, naturally adults will have this drive to sleep when it's dark and will have this natural drive to be awake when it's light. So when you're awake in daylight for a certain amount of time, that's going to impact certain chemical reactions in your body and your brain that affect metabolism, mood, digestion, cognitive ability, and of course, sleep. So that's why you want to, you know, we mentioned consistency. That is super helpful to keeping this all aligned. You don't want your natural body clock to be confused. You want to make it as easy as possible for it to do all of the things that it does without you having to think about it. So if you are changing your schedule a lot, or if you, you know, have excessive use of stimulants or depressants, you know, just for example, these are some things that can throw off your natural body clock. Or if you don't have access to natural daylight, you can throw these things off and then you might run into some problems with sleep or hormones and things like that. Yeah. So that just makes me wonder. So I know you say our natural inclination is like when it gets darker to go to sleep, when it's light out to wake up. So how does technology play a role? Because I know a lot of us scroll on our phones or we're watching TV before we go to bed. Like, is that going to impact us actually going to sleep? Because I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I feel like when I have the TV on in bed, I stay up probably later than I would have. Yeah. And it's it's such a common question. And it's a really good one too, because it's so relatable and so relevant. There is so much information out there. I mean, the quick answer is yes, it does affect us, but it's also, it's also kind of complicated. So I'll start with the most obvious and like more of the negative stuff, but then I, I promise I have some good news too. So blue light and any light really can slow the the production and the release of melatonin. And melatonin is a hormone that all humans have that helps to tell us when it's time to go to sleep. So we can assume or we know (laughs) that when you are delaying melatonin, you are delaying that need for sleep or that drive to sleep. So if you have very bright lights, or even if sometimes people in parts of the country where it stays light much longer, they have trouble falling asleep because of that delayed melatonin. If you're looking at screens and bright lights and TVs, it is assumed that it's going to delay your melatonin and slow down your time to sleep. And this is true, but frankly, it's not very much. So what really is something to remember is that it's not just the screens and it's not just the brightness. It's what you're looking at. You know, it's not going to kill you if you're like scrolling through some puppy videos as you're trying to fall asleep. But if you're, you know, looking at Instagram and looking at all these people who you think are better looking and more successful, if you're checking your calendar for the 500 things you have to do the next day, or if you're watching TV and it's something really exciting. You know, I was just watching some Netflix show and I had to get to that last episode. And of course, I stayed up later and I was all excited and I'm like crying in bed. So those are all things that are going to impact sleep a lot more than the actual act of looking at that light but you can't really decouple them. Like they're always sort of related. But, you know, if you are someone who falls asleep with the TV on, it's not really as bad as we initially thought in the sleep world. But I would still recommend turning the TV off as much as you can because you don't want the sound, you don't want the light, you want it to be dark. So it can affect it, but it's really everything else that goes into looking at these screens in your phone versus just that light. That makes sense because typically when I'm watching TV and I can't go to sleep, it's because I'm watching something I'm super interested in. So I just want to see what happens next. So that makes a lot of sense. So I feel like I've heard different things on this, but how can we determine how much sleep is best for us? I feel like at one point I heard that women need more sleep, but anything you can tell us to help us kind of figure out what amount of sleep that we need? Yeah. So on average, adult humans need seven to nine hours of sleep. So you'll often hear that you need eight hours and people can get sort of like obsessive about this number, but it's totally healthy and normal if you're a kind of person who only needs seven hours. If you just feel like you're really not yourself and you are able to and you get nine hours of sleep, that's totally fine too. 
you absolutely need this amount of sleep, seven to nine hours to optimize your health and performance. Usually when I say that in a webinar or something, I can sort of see people starting to roll their eyes because, you know, who has the time to do all this? We have like 8 million things to do, right? But Unfortunately, it's just the way our bodies work. You really can't trick yourself into needing less. Now, there are some people who are genetically predisposed to being short sleepers, which means that according to their genetics, they actually only need, let's say, six hours of sleep or maybe even five. And even unless this is possible, it is incredibly unlikely. Like you might as well consider like having lunch with a shark unlikely. It's probably not you. If you're listening to this and you're kind of the person who brags about getting like four or five hours of sleep, I can promise that it's very unlikely that it's healthy for you. Um, like less than 1% one popu- one of population has it. But what really happens to those people is that they've just gotten used to feeling a certain way and you think that it's normal and healthy. But what I see a lot is those people who feel like, oh, four or five hours is enough. Once they start getting more and they start having you know, more of a clear head and they're not as moody, then they realize that they actually did need more sleep. Yes. I appreciate that you mentioned that we might feel like that's all we need because that's just how we're used to feeling and we don't know what the better feels like because that's so true. Mm -hmm. And also the seven hours, that's something I talk with my doctor a lot. She's like, Victoria, you need to figure out how you can get seven hours because as you've said, sleep is so crucial. And I'm one of those people, I really struggle with getting the seven hours. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us like what happens when we don't get enough sleep consistently? Like what does that do to us? Yeah, so after just, one poor night of sleep, you might feel groggy, slow, maybe a little moody. You know, this is something that I think we can all relate to. Or even if you think of like a toddler who misses their nap, they're so distraught. And honestly, adults have those same, like we, we feel those ways too. It's just that adults happen to have like a fully formed prefrontal cortex and our brains to help us sort of push that down. But that doesn't mean that our brains aren't sad and wanting to cry like that. So when you don't get enough sleep, again, you're not going to feel your best. But that also has to do with what I mentioned before about your brain clearing those toxins during deep sleep. So again, that's like that grogginess or maybe you're a little bit forgetful. Now, over many, many years and, you know, adding in other risk factors, you'll see buildup of these toxins in the brains of people who have cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. And I I don't, you know, say that to scare anybody, like it does take many years, but (laughs) it's just to let you know that there is that linkage there. When you're not getting enough sleep, if you are the kind of person who is eating really well and working out and maybe you're trying to lose weight, you might notice that it's just not working anymore. Their weight loss will slow down or maybe it will just plateau. Maybe you're not growing your muscle as much as you want to. You know, we see the athletes that, again, they're focusing on everything except for their sleep and they just don't seem to be improving. And again, memory and mood will just sort of continue to decline. If you're prone to anxiety, anxiety or depression, we know that this can worsen with sleep deprivation. So if there's nothing else going on and you have this condition and you feel like it's getting worse, that might be because you're not getting enough sleep. Wow. So I definitely can relate when I don't get enough sleep. I do feel like I'm so forgetful and it's so ironic because I will stay up late to work and then I don't get enough sleep for the next day. And then it's like, I'm so much less productive because I didn't get enough sleep. So it's like just figuring out that balance and making sure that I set a boundary with my work time so that I get enough sleep because it's only going to make my work day the next day easier. A hundred percent. You're right. That is the irony of this whole thing is, you know, when I do these webinars, for example, for employers, I'm basically trying to teach their employees how to sleep, which is something that is done completely outside of the workspace. But when they come to work the next day, you know, they're able to actually focus on their work and they're scrolling a little less because they can focus more on what's in front of them and they're, they're raising their hands more and they're getting things done just a little bit quicker. They're not forgetting where they put a file. It's really these little things that like add up (laughs) over time and you don't even realize it until it starts getting better. Yes. Can you tell us what are some warning signs of sleep deprivation? Um, I would definitely start with your mood and memory. 
primarily. Again, if you're not, you know, taking some kind of medication or you don't have anything else going on in your life, that is an obvious reason for mood or memory. Some people maybe throughout certain times of the month, I know I'm not the most pleasant person, but I realize (laughs) when that is and I know it's not because of sleep. So if you have something like that, then that's what you need to look at. There's not like random times that your brain just decides to be more forgetful. It it has to be related to something. You might experience a change in appetite and digestive issues, especially if your circadian rhythm is off balance. Even people who have, you know, IBS, for example, when you're sleeping less, there is this inflammatory response and that might flare up a condition that you already have. So there's this really direct relationship, again, to a lot of other medical conditions that we don't really think about as related to sleep. But if you have, if you have some kind of condition, for example, and it gets worse, look at your sleep right away. If you are getting sick a lot, you know, if you have a cold that just keeps coming back or a sinus infection. So yes, of course, you have to first be exposed to those pathogens, but adequate quality sleep is going to help you keep your immune system strong to recover quickly and potentially even avoid being sick altogether in the future if you are sleeping better. It's so interesting that you say that because I feel like every time I get sick, I know I'm going to get sick because I haven't been sleeping enough. Like literally, that's how I know I'm probably going to get sick if I don't get my stuff together and get to sleep. So it's so interesting that you mentioned that. Right. You're not crazy. And we have so this as- intuition and we sort of know it, but we just keep, again, we just sort of like push it under the rug. We're like, I think that's what's happening, but it's like, we, we just tell ourselves that's not true, but I'm telling you, it is true. You're not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know that I'm not crazy. As we get older, do we tend to have more sleep problems? Because I feel like kids, they sleep Mm. so well. But now that I'm older, it's so hard. (laughs) Well, you know, kids don't have bills to pay. They don't have jobs and people to take care of. No stress. Um, (laughs) No stress. I mean, seriously, people are nice to you all the time. They take you wherever you want. They feed you. What's their early sleep about? But um, (laughs) yes and no. So again, a lot of this really does, I'm joking, but like a lot of this really does have to do with added responsibilities and the inevitable stress that adults have as we get older. Stress and anxiety play a huge role in sleeplessness. I mean, every plant person, almost every person will experience short periods of insomnia, you know, in their lives, especially during difficult times. And this is totally normal. But there is, you know, more of an anatomy or physiological standpoint for some people, especially hormone changes for both men and women. This can cause disruptive leap. It can also be a risk factor for sleep apnea. Some people tend to gain weight as they get older, and this can also increase your risk of sleep apnea. For example, in our later years of life, our melatonin levels do drop a little bit. So we do find that older adults tend to wake up much earlier, and sometimes they have trouble falling asleep. But again, most of the sleeplessness or sleep problems that we have as we get older really have to do with external forces, like other things going on, stress and anxiety, and some Sometimes these hormonal changes. That makes sense. I know a good thing or a good tool that I use sometimes is to like try to journal and clear my mind before bed because whenever I have so much on my mind and I try to go to sleep, it's not going to happen. I'm just literally going to toss and turn for half of the night. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. That's that's a really great trick too to go to bed. A lot of people journal in the morning. Personally, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I do definitely prefer at night as well to sort of like. Like, just get the ideas out of my brain and onto the paper. It's, it's very like symbolic to me. <laughs> yes, definitely. So how long on average, I'm sure everyone's different, but how long should it take us to actually fall asleep? You're right. Everybody is different. On average, seven to 10 minutes is normal and healthy. Now, if you're someone who takes much longer or, you know, let's say that it takes you 20 or 30 minutes and that's consistent, that's normal too. It's probably fine. Now, if it takes much longer to the point where it's frustrating to you and it's, you know, disrupting your sleep totally and your quality of life, then another issue. That's potentially something called sleep onset insomnia, which means that you have trouble at the onset of sleep. Now, this can be resolved with professional help. There's, it's not anything crazy or secretive about it, this can be resolved. There's also like the the opposite issue that I hear about pretty often. If you're someone who can fall asleep anywhere or fall asleep as soon as your head hits the pillow, 
I mean, it's great in a way because this is your body, you know, your body and your mind there is so incredible. They're trying to help you get into sleep ASAP, but it's usually because you're, you're starved for sleep. You might actually be sleep deprived if it's, if you're able to fall asleep this quickly. I actually see this a lot in people who have sleep apnea because they are, their sleep is so disrupted at night that during the day they're so tired. And so they can just fall asleep, you know, sitting in the chair or God forbid, you know, in their car at a red light. So if you fall asleep too quickly, it could actually be a problem just as much as if you're taking a while to fall asleep. Wow. I'm happy you mentioned that. And I laugh because I was thinking, I was going to ask you that. I was like, well, what about the people who are lucky and can just fall asleep when like at a snap of a finger? But I'm Mm -hmm. glad you mentioned that that could be a sign of sleep deprivation because I've met people who do that. And I'm like, how are you sleeping in the corner of a park? Party or like, how are you sleeping on this like subway full of people just so quickly, you know? So yeah, definitely a good point to make. So if we have trouble falling asleep, what are some things we can do to fall asleep quicker? I do love your mention before about journaling. Some people call it a brain dump. So I do like that idea. Again, it gets like all these racing thoughts out of your mind and onto paper, especially if that's how your, um, your mindset is. You're kind of like envisioning it happening that way. Otherwise, Simple breathwork is my go-to. There are breathwork techniques that can be so powerful for relaxation, both during the day and falling asleep at night. So just the act of focusing on your breath, you're actually helping to regulate and calm your nervous system, which needs to happen for sleep. Just a few minutes of breathwork can activate the rest and digest mode of your parasympathetic nervous system versus the very active like fight or flight mode, which I mean, it's pretty clear that none of us want to be in fight or flight when we're going to sleep. Um, (laughs) Any sort of breath work really though, you can just practicing slow, deep breaths, especially through your nose, which is the healthiest way to breathe. Or you can try something more specific. I really like box breathing. It's super simple. Um, anybody can just Google that online. It's very simple. Or the four, seven, eight method of breath work. All of these are proven to help you relax and fall asleep. Ooh, I love it. I'm going to have to Google the box breathing method because I have not heard of that one. So does red light help? Like I've heard like using red light at night or just like a light dimmer in your room could potentially help you. I guess it can help with the wind down process. Is there any proven scientific data on that? There is a little bit. Yes. Unfortunately, there are a lot of products out there that are just red light and not necessarily like the frequency or, um, you know, the exact color. You know, I'm not a light specialist, so I'm kind of forgetting what the exact word is right now. But a lot of them are kind of just gimmicky products. But red light therapy in general Mm -hmm. can be effective in helping to improve quality sleep and duration. Um, Red light does help to increase our natural melatonin, which again is very helpful to helping us fall asleep. So if you get a good quality product or a device that is emitting red light, and I think there are some that are actually more medical devices to help with that, it can help you increase your melatonin. And so you want to have this melatonin at night to help you fall asleep and then stay asleep. Because again, melatonin tells us, it basically tells our mind that it's time to sleep. So if you have enough of it and it's abundant, um, maybe it's improved by this red light, then you will stay asleep throughout the night or at least a little bit better. Yeah. So I know you mentioned melatonin. So what are your thoughts on the actual like melatonin supplements for people who are struggling to sleep? That's a very hot topic. <laughs> melatonin <laughs> itself is helpful. There is a ton of research on it. In the clinical setting, though, the dosages are so low. The doses are 0.2 milligrams or up to a half a milligram, maybe. Sometimes you'll see two milligrams. If you ever see much higher doses, it's more for immune function. And again, that's in a clinical setting. So when you see these products on the shelves and they're like extra strength, 10 milligrams, there's absolutely nothing out there that says that that's going to help you any better. And in fact, it can also just have more side effects. And so in theory and in general, melatonin can be helpful. But for the most part, and especially here in America where the supplements are not ready, 
regulated at all. It's less about the melatonin and more about what else is possibly in these products. So if you do use it, I would just recommend really looking into the other ingredients there again was a study at this point, I want to say it was like a month or two months ago that came out that everybody was talking about. It was about melatonin and CBD and how their ingredients didn't really match what's on the bottle. This is absolutely no surprise to anybody in sleep medicine. This has been happening for years. I mean, melatonin is one of the products that is just never accurate on the label. You'll see anywhere between like 40% to like 300% of the levels in the pills. So again, it's really more about sourcing. And to be honest, most people are not deficient in melatonin anyway. So I mentioned before that as we get older, we might be deficient if you're experiencing a lot of bright light or if you're getting bright light into the nighttime hours, then you might need more melatonin and that can be helpful. But otherwise, it's not like a, it's not really a sleeping pill and a cure-all. Um, there are other supplements that can help as well. I personally really like magnesium. Again, it's not, it's not a sleeping pill. It's not just going to knock you out. And none of these supplements will. They're not meant to do that. But if they supplement your healthy diet and your healthy habits, then they certainly can help you fall asleep a little bit easier. Yes, I use magnesium glycinate and I like to use that before bed. So I love that you mentioned magnesium. Yeah, that's perfect. And that that's one that's relatively safe for all people. You know, of course, if you have some kind of condition or you're taking certain medications, I know that it might have some digestive issues for some people, but for the most part... Magnesium is very helpful to most people and it helps hundreds of functions in your body, including mood and sleep. So I'm a big fan. Same. So can you tell us about the most common sleep disorders that can go undiagnosed if we don't know the symptoms? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So first is going to be insomnia. And this one probably isn't really a surprise to anybody. I feel like a lot of people think that they have insomnia and maybe it's just a normal bout of sleeplessness. So it is important to remember that that's totally normal. But if you're having trouble sleeping more than three times a week for about three months, that gets into the realm where it might be classified as chronic insomnia. And in that case, you really do need to speak to a person professional. At that point, your brain has started to get used to the sleeplessness. It starts to feel like it's normal. It starts to just keep you up when you want to go to sleep. And of course, that can be really frustrating. And, you know, I mentioned to you in, in an email when we first started talking that everybody's always sharing these memes and they're funny and it's all about coffee and sleeplessness. And it's kind of funny because it's all very relatable, but that doesn't mean it's normal. And so especially with insomnia and especially with women, we've we normalize this. And so I want to say that that is a very common sleep disorder that is undiagnosed because we just sort of accept it as like a part of our life. And we forget that there are people that can help us get over it and make us feel a lot better. <laughs> yes. There is, I would say, and of course, which is my specialty, sleep apnea is another thing that goes incredibly undiagnosed. Most people who have sleep apnea, the numbers you know, for the last several decades have been about 80% of people who have sleep apnea are not diagnosed. If you're a woman, that number is about 90%. And if you're a woman of color, it's a 95% chance that you are not diagnosed, even if you have this disorder. So that it's crazy. Again, a lot of it has to do with us normalizing some of the symptoms. So snoring is not always, but most likely <laughs> in most people, a sign of sleep apnea. And a lot of people just kind of push it away and they don't get tested or diagnosed, but it is a, a serious medical condition. Wow. 90 to 95% is a lot. So can you tell us for those who don't know what sleep apnea is? And I know you said snoring, but if there's any other symptoms, just so that we like when symptoms that we would know, like, okay, it's time for us to maybe go get a test to see if we have it. Definitely. So yes, when people think of sleep apnea, they usually think of some, you know, old fat guy like falling asleep on the couch, which is definitely a stereotype. And 
honestly, if you are a man and if you are overweight and if you are over 50, you are more likely to have it. But <laughs> that doesn't mean that nobody else can have it. And again, that that lends to the very high numbers, especially of women who are not diagnosed. So if you're snoring, you should probably get checked out by a doctor. Um, some other side or some other symptoms are excessive daytime sleepiness. So we are talking about how much you sleep before, you know, let's just say you are getting your full eight hours of sleep. That's what you're comfortable with. That's what you can do. And yet you're still really tired the next day. That would be a sign that you need to see a doctor because if you do have sleep apnea, that would mean that even though you're sleeping throughout the night, it's disrupted over and over and over again, because when you have sleep apnea, your airway is restricted and sometimes, well, often closed completely. So you're constantly, your heart is racing, you're constantly gasping for air, you're constantly being oxygen deprived, and that is pretty exhausting the next day. That can also lead to morning headaches. If you wake up with a headache and you didn't have one when you went to bed and all you did was sleep, it is likely that you were deprived of oxygen. So maybe you have sleep apnea. All of these things, again, are kind of normalized and just kind of get used to it, but they can all be signs of sleep apnea and you need to see a doctor. Yes. So what if you don't know you're snoring? I don't know. I guess you could record yourself, but... I mean, I can imagine that some people might not even know that they snore if no one's told them. Yeah, that's true. And especially if you're a single person or you don't have a bed partner or your you know, partner is away a lot or something, you might not know that you're snoring. In that case, you can record yourself. There are some apps. I know the Sleep Space app has something. There's something called Snore Lab. If you wake up in the morning and your mouth is really dry, that is a pretty good indicator that you're sleeping with your mouth open, which often happens when you're snoring. And even if you're not snoring, sleeping with your mouth open really isn't ideal anyway. So again, something you might want to look into. I'm glad you mentioned sleeping with your mouth open. So what do you think about mouth tape? And like, I know I've heard about people taping their mouth shut. I know not with like scotch tape or anything, but what are your thoughts on mouth taping? And is it something that you think we should try if we do sleep with our mouth open? Yeah, for the most part, for healthy people who can breathe through their nose, then I think that mouth tape is a great option, especially because it can, it's very passive. It's not, you know, people who don't, who've never tried it might think it's like a very claustrophobic feeling. But again, you're not using scotch tape or duct tape. You're using a medical grade tape. There are lots of great products out there. The problem that I see is that sometimes people use mouth tape because they are snoring or because they have sleep apnea and they're not actually getting treatment for that or getting tested for that. But again, if you if you can breathe through your nose, if you don't have any ENT problems, you don't have a deviated septum, if you know that you don't have sleep apnea, then yeah, I think that mouth tape is really helpful, actually. It can help us get into deeper sleep and potentially sleep longer because it's encouraging that nasal breathing that is very healthy. Nice. So are there any particular brands that you recommend or is there something we should look for if we decide that we do want to buy mouth tape? Yeah, there are. I mean, there again, there are a bunch of brands out there. There are two that I really like. One is called Vio Tape. I, I believe V-I-O. I'm sure it's sold on Amazon. It's like an H shape. So I like that one. Well, the people who make it are, are lovely people, but it's also, since it's an H shape, you can wear it two different ways, um, especially if you have facial hair or something, you kind of want to play around with how you wear it. And the other one is Drift Sleep. And that's more of lip shaped, but it has a little hole in the middle. It was a woman owned company. So I love that one too. Ooh, that one sounds really cool. So I know you mentioned that we should get seven to nine hours of sleep. So is there such a thing as sleeping too much? Like if you get more than nine hours? This is such a good question. And it's something that's super intriguing to me personally, just because I'm like a sleep nerd. Yes, but like not really. <laughs> so people who, <laughs> according to research, people who sleep 10 or more hours a night regularly, they do have a higher risk of depression, anxiety, obesity, but the direct relationship isn't really that clear. So for some people, oversleeping is actually a sign of depression that's not being treated, or maybe it's not being properly managed, or or maybe their medication is making them so sleepy that they cannot stay awake. That doesn't mean that the sleep is causing the depression. Or 
we might assume that people who spend an excessive amount of time in bed don't get outside during those prime sunlight hours, throwing off their circadian rhythm, and maybe they don't have time to exercise. So it's safe to assume that this might affect obesity. Again, I'm not saying that the sleep, the excess of sleep is causing obesity, but if we're thinking about the other lifestyle factors, I I think there is probably a correlation there. Although again, I'm not a researcher, but there's also some people who have an overwhelming drive to sleep, which then might be diagnosed as hypersomnia or even narcolepsy. So this is something you obviously want to talk to your doctor about. So if you're still sleepy after eight or nine or 10 hours, it's it's very likely that you have a sleep disorder or some other medical condition, um, which really needs to be evaluated to be treated. That makes sense. So what about people who snooze all the time? <laughs> I don't even know if that is what correlation that has with sleep, I guess maybe they're just really tired. But what are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like whenever I have shared a room with someone who snoozes all the time, I'm a light sleeper. So I'm like, how is this helping? It's going off every five seconds. It feels like as soon as I start to get back to sleep, it like goes off and like scares me awake. So I just like, Mm -hmm. what is the effect of snoozing? Yeah, I mean, you're right. That's a really good point. And usually snooze is like nine minutes, right? So it really does hit you just before you get back into like deep sleep or REM sleep. Usually, if at that point. So it is just kind of jolting you over and over again. I think even though people, even when people are pressing snooze over and over again, because it's a habit, even they will probably tell you that they don't feel any better. It just doesn't work that way. So you're basically just doing this roller coaster in your brain going in and out of the stages of sleep super quick. So it's definitely not going to help you. I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to hurt you, but you're probably just going to stay groggy. So if you wake up and you're still tired and you press snooze once, you know, it's fine. If you have to press it over and over again, you're just dragging out the grogginess. I got to be honest, (laughs) you're not getting any more quality (laughs) sleep. So I mean, skip it and get some sunlight. I love it. Get the sunlight first thing in the morning. That's a tip that I have heard. And that's what my health coach told me. So Mm -hmm. yes, I love that. Speaking of tips, what are three to five tips that you can give us to help us get more quality sleep? Ooh, good, good question. Um, I think... First and foremost, I would say consistency is key. Again, we mentioned circadian rhythms and you even mentioned that you try to be consistent. Our bodies love patterns. Our brains love patterns. They need the consistency for this circadian rhythm alignment. So if you go to bed and wake up at the same time or you know, within 30 minutes to an hour every single day, it actually really, really helps you to both fall asleep and wake up over time. And that does mean on the weekends. So I'll be the first to admit that I am not the best at following this rule. On the weekends, I do sometimes sleep in. (laughs) But what happens when you do that is that let's just say you wake up I don't know, every morning at 7am, Monday through Friday. And then maybe you wake up at 9am on Saturday and Sunday. By the time your circadian rhythm and your body clocks gets used to waking up at 9am on Saturday and Sunday, then it's Monday. And then Monday morning, when you're already going to be tired because it's a Monday, your body wants to wake up at 9, but you're making it wake up at 7. And so you kind of start this whole cycle of like, just not feeling your best. So consistency as far as waking up and going to bed is definitely key and free. It's a free tip. Something else in line with consistency actually is to make a routine. When you make anything a routine, it becomes a habit. It's just a lot easier to do. It doesn't feel like a chore. And a routine doesn't have to be some long drawn out process. You know, maybe it's just that you brush your teeth and wash your face and do your skincare in the same exact order around the same exact time every single night. So again, our, our brain likes to make these associations. So if you, for many days in a row, pick out your clothes and then you brush your teeth and then you wash your face and you do three-step skincare, and then right after that, you go to bed, eventually your brain starts thinking, okay, as soon as I start my skincare, I'm going to start to slow down because I'm, I'm going to sleep after this. And that's a subconscious thing that we don't have to teach ourselves to do. Our brain just starts to pick up on it when you make a routine. So I highly, highly encourage everybody to have a bedtime routine. I mean, what I guess, I guess the other thing would be light. It's, I think it's so underrated 
we've talked about it like 15 times already, but again, it's, it's really underrated, especially these days when we're inside all the time, we're on our computers. Like if you have five minutes in the morning to get outside, do it. If you can only stick your head out of the window, that's even more helpful than just sitting inside all day. Our bodies crave this natural sunlight and it helps with so many different hormones and feeling awake. It's a really great way to trick your body into feeling awake when you don't want to be awake. So like if you're that person who's pressing snooze, maybe just do it once, but like open the blinds immediately. (laughs) I love that. So when you say get outside, because you said, I know you're joking, but you said even if you stick your head out the window, so it has to be, you have to actually be outside. You can't just like open your blinds and like pull up the curtains or the blinds and be like, oh, the sun is coming in through the window, but we need to actually try to get out and get light. Yeah. I mean, bright light of any kind is helpful. I have really great big windows in my living room and I know that when I'm working there versus my office, which is darker, I know that I feel more awake because of the bright light, but the actual rays of the sun and the actual brightness of the sun is so much brighter outside than through windows. And that directly goes into our eyes and it goes directly into our brain in ways that, again, we can't really tell the difference, but our brains can, and it really does help. And it also helps us to produce vitamin D. So any bit of sunlight you can get is helpful. Nice. So I have to go back to when you mentioned waking up and going to bed consistently, even on the weekend. So it made so much sense when you said, oh, if you wake up at nine on Saturday and then you get back to 7 a.m. on Monday, it makes sense why our bodies would be like, oh my gosh, like I just do not want to wake up at seven on Monday when I've been sleeping in for the last two days. So I kind of wonder if that is something that can also contribute to the, what is it, the Monday blues. So this is really interesting to think about that. Yeah, I think so. You know what? Mondays are hard enough. If you are the kind of person who has like the weekend off, we don't want to make it harder on ourselves. So it really, even if, okay, maybe sleep in on Saturday, at least on Sunday, like just try. And especially if you are someone who is struggling on Monday mornings or if you are someone who's struggling to fall asleep, it's such a small thing to do. And it seems so simple, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be impactful. Right. And I will say the times that I have woken up early on a Saturday and Sunday, I feel like I get so much more done. If I can go to the grocery store right when it opens, it's so empty. And I feel like, I don't know, everything just feels a lot nicer because everything's less crowded because most people are probably sleeping in. <laughs> it's it's so true. It's, you know, it's the little things when you're an adult, you're like, this is amazing. The grocery store. And you get back at like 930 in the morning, you're like, I'm so accomplished. <laughs> Yes, this is too funny. Okay, so this next question, I feel like it's a little bit of a debate, at least in my family, it's a debate, but what is the best temperature to sleep at? (laughs) Oh, good question. So I think online a lot, you'll see information saying like 65 to 67. There is research backing that up to say that 65 or 67 is the ideal temperature. If you have AC and you can tolerate this, go ahead and do it. Personally, it's a little too chilly for me, but you do need to keep it cool. So basically 70 or below, again, if you if you have AC and you can do that, otherwise using open windows and fans, you don't want to use flannel or thick sheets. Even in the winter, honestly, you're much better off with layers than thick sheets because having your body temperature cool is actually going to help you fall asleep. I love that you mentioned if you can handle it. I kid you not. I used to share a room with someone who loved it at like the 65 and I would have layers and I would be shivering so much that I couldn't even sleep. So yeah, yeah, I think it does make a lot of sense to make sure your body can actually handle it because it's not going to help you if you can't sleep because you're too cold. The same with being too hot. Right. Because then like you're laying in bed. I've done this to you. Like you're laying in bed. I have like socks and a sweatshirt on, but a few hours into sleep, then you're sweating and you're peeling off all your layers and it's just sort of counterproductive. That makes sense. Okay. So what about sleeping positions? Are there any known sleeping positions that are better for our sleep? Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, and like, I hate to be so vague, but as I'm sure you realize sleep is very subjective and everybody is different and different people have different pain or conditions, but generally speaking for healthy people, Side sleeping is ideal. Now it's only slightly better than any other way, but if you're sleeping on your left side has a bit of an advantage, um, this can help to alleviate acid reflux, 
and improve digestion. It can help to stimulate lymphatic drainage. Um, if you are somebody who snores generally and typically, um, you will snore more if you're laying on your back. So that's why sometimes people push their partners over to their side when they're snoring. But again, that doesn't really apply to all people. Sometimes people snore on their sides. <laughs> <laughs> too funny. So how important is the mattress that we're sleeping on? Um, it's important because sleep is about being comfortable. You have to be comfortable to be able to fall asleep and stay asleep instead of tossing and turning. In my opinion, the materials are more important than like the brand or the firmness or anything like that. Um, a lot of traditional mattresses have all kinds of terrifying chemicals in them that are carcinogenic and flammable and then can disrupt your hormones. You know, these aren't exactly things that you want to be like sleeping in every night. But, you know, if you, if you can't afford, you know, the organic, most amazing natural mattress, you can also consider a mattress cover that is a little bit gentler and safer. But as far as how it feels, generally a more firm mattress is better for our natural um, skeletal alignment. But if you are someone who has joint pain, maybe you need something softer and fluffier or, you know, pregnant people might need a little bit more support and, you know, those extra pillows or people who snore might need to be propped up. So it really does vary, but a lot of it is based on comfort. And again, in my opinion, materials. So speaking of materials and just the things that are in some of the mattresses and maybe even sheets, are there any materials that we should look for when we are looking for mattress covers and sheets? I know you said organic. Was it organic cotton or? Yeah, yeah. Anything organic. There are some materials like um, bamboo, actually, which is a little bit more micro microbial. So like not as many germs grow on it. They're a little bit lighter. Um, things that just don't have a lot of synthetic dyes. Some of them actually have like formaldehyde in it and things like that. Um, if you, if you want to actually find something or know what to look for or not to look for, I would actually work backwards. So I would go to a website of like an organic mattress company. One that comes to mind is called Naturepedic. And if you go on their website, it will give you a list of all of the things that they are not. And so in looking at that list, you can then say, okay, you know, maybe you don't buy that mattress, but at least you know those long words of chemicals that are just way too difficult to pronounce. And you'll know to look in the labels of the other materials. But yeah, you know, organic cotton, um, some bamboo materials, things that don't have a lot of dyes and like why you would need preservatives and, you know, inflammatory materials in a mattress is like beyond me, but they are there. So, so look for those kind of words. I like the tip of going to a site that specializes in that and then just working backwards to see what you don't want. So I really like that tip a lot. So I have to ask, are naps beneficial to help improve our sleep or to help us get more sleep? Or should we just be focused really on getting a good sleep overnight? Uh, Well, I mean, you should always be focused on getting good sleep overnight, (laughs) but it can be both. So (laughs) short naps are used strategically more and more as we understand them a little more and we can do more testing. Um, It's used strategically by athletes, even the military, um, probably by new moms and dads. If If you keep them short enough to avoid getting into those deeper stages of sleep, then they can be beneficial because when you sleep a little bit too long, and I think probably everybody has experienced this, or you'll hear people say like, oh, I never nap because I just feel so bad when I wake up. That's most likely because they're getting into deeper sleep. Because then when you wake up in the middle of that, you do feel very groggy and uncomfortable because that's not really a natural state for you to wake up in. If you want to nap because you have trouble sleeping at night or you actually do have insomnia, that's where it gets a little trickier. So if you're having trouble falling asleep, you actually want to stay awake as long as possible throughout the day to increase that natural drive and increase the chemicals in your brain that tell you to sleep, even though you're really, really tired. 
of course, again, I'm going to recommend working with a professional on this because it can be very uncomfortable. But if you have trouble sleeping at night, I recommend staying up as long as possible during the day. And then it, it does kind of just get back to the idea of if you have time and it's just part of your routine and you dislike napping, go ahead and do that. But if you feel like you're just so tired that you need a nap and it's happening like very often, it it might be a sign that something is not quite right with your sleep at night. And maybe you need to talk to somebody about that. That makes sense. And I've definitely been there when I've slept too long in a nap and I just wake up and I'm just like, what is life? Where am I? What's going on? <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, keep it to, you know, all the time you'll see people recommending like 15 minute naps or, or 20 minute naps. And that is true, you know, scientifically, those are right numbers. But, you know, even saying it out loud just feels like very unrealistic to me. Like, I'm not going to lay down and sleep for 15 yeah. minutes. So if you if you can nap, or this is at least what I do personally, I'll set an alarm for like 40 minutes knowing full well that I'm going to take 10 minutes to fall asleep because it's the middle of the day and I'm still thinking about everything I have to do. And then I'll get about 30 minutes or 25 minutes of a nap in and then I can wake up after that. So, you know, when you're when you're planning your power nap, if you can do that, add in a little bit of like padding so you don't feel deprived. Yes, that's a very, very good point. So I know sometimes it's harder for people to get adequate sleep when they're outside of their home. So are there any tips you can give us to help us sleep better while we're traveling? Um, if you if you have a bedtime routine and a morning routine, that will certainly help if you're in a different place if you are doing the same, let's call it three to four steps before bed, your brain will recognize that it is time to sleep right after that. Um, of course, if you are changing time zones and things like that, it gets a little tricky. And a lot of times when we travel, we are maybe drinking more or using more caffeine. So I don't want to tell you not to do those things, but I want to tell you to be very careful of the timing with those things. So if you are a drinker, maybe you just drink a little bit earlier in the day because that will disrupt the quality of your sleep. Same goes with caffeine. If you're out and everybody's having espresso after dinner, but you know that you're the kind of person who doesn't sleep well in a hotel or when you're in a new place, then you should probably skip it all together. Maybe get a decaf, but most likely just skip it all together. So definitely be aware of your of your chemical intake, your your alcohol, your caffeine when you're traveling. Stick to your routine and make it as dark as possible where you're sleeping. Again, to sort of trick your body into thinking, it's nighttime, I need to sleep now, let's up that melatonin production, let's go to sleep, try to make it as dark as possible. Yes, I'm happy you mentioned that alcohol can disrupt sleep. I feel like I've noticed that lately about me, like I'll go and like maybe have a few drinks on like Friday or Saturday. And then I realize, oh my gosh, like I'm sleeping so terribly. So then I just wake up so tired. And the next day I feel like, wow, like this has ruined my day. So can you tell us a little bit like why that can happen to some people? Yeah, definitely. And it's it's so important to you to experience it for yourself, like you just said. And even as a sleep coach, I sort of hate to admit this, but I also feel like people need to know. I've studied this. Like I know what exactly happens in your brain when you're drinking alcohol and you're trying to sleep. And yet I do still drink. And, you know, sometimes I'll have even just like two glasses of wine and it will be a few hours. And the next morning when I wake up, I'm like, no, I was like sweating in the middle of the night. I was tossing and turning. And you think it's not really affecting you, even though, again, I know it is, but it does. And once you realize that, and once you make that link, you start to just be a little bit more aware. And maybe instead of like four glasses of wine, maybe you only have two. Or I know I've been cutting back a lot more because it, it absolutely affects it. There's no way around it. Again, you can't really help the way the human body is designed, the human brain is designed and alcohol disrupts your sleep no matter what. So some people use it as a sleep aid or they think it's a sleep aid because it can help you feel sedated. You know, anybody who's drank too much knows that you can pass out and fall asleep, right? But the quality of your sleep is absolutely demolished and there's there's no way around it. So when you have alcohol it um, it will suppress your REM sleep. And we mentioned before that REM sleep is 
for dreams and emotional processing and memory consolidation. So it's super, super important. So it will suppress REM sleep. And then as the alcohol wears off, your your brain does this amazing thing where it tries to catch up. So what happens is you might go into REM rebound. So you might have a lot of REM. You might have really crazy dreams or if you wake up in the morning and you're lucky enough to go back to sleep after a night of drinking, that's always like the best, juiciest part of sleep because your brain is like trying to catch up on all the sleep that you missed. But no matter what, you missed all that good sleep before. Like the staging of your sleep has been all messed up. And so the next morning, whether you feel hungover or not, your brain does. <laughs> it is sleepy. It is not getting the right sleep that it wanted. So alcohol impacts your sleep no matter what. Yeah. I just think, like you said, you have to experience it to believe it because I feel like that had never happened to me before. But once I experienced it, I was recently telling one of my friends, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to have to reevaluate and just be more strategic or just think more about when I go out, like how much I want to drink and knowing that it now, now, now that I know that it impacts my sleep because it does mm-hmm. make a difference, especially if I have something to do the next day or, you know, so it's definitely, it was eye opening for me. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like sure. I would love for everybody that works with me to just not drink alcohol at all. But if we're being realistic, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do as an adult. Right. But if they can drink just a little bit less, or maybe they don't drink at all only on the days, you know, the next day they have something really important, then at least I know that that's going to make them feel better. Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel like I've learned so much from this conversation. So I am really grateful for you coming on. Can you tell us where we can follow you and just more about what you do? Absolutely. Thanks so much. I could talk about sleep all day. So thanks for letting me babble on and on. Um, (laughs) You can follow me on Instagram. You uh, Instagram, Sleep Better NYC, no spaces or dots. I'm on Facebook as the same thing, LinkedIn as the same thing, or you can just go to my website, which is sleepbetter.nyc, not .com. Oh, okay. I love it. Thank you again so, so much. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode. If you really loved the episode and you felt like it resonated with you, be sure to share the love and share the episode with a friend. Also, if you could take a minute and head to the review section wherever you listen to your podcast and leave me a review, letting me know what you're loving about these episodes and which topics you want to hear next. That way, I can make sure that I continue creating episodes that you love. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Until next week, bye, grown girl gang.